page 21 in your notes. We'll start there. But we're going to finish off our series, Parenting with Purpose, today. So I'm just going to review most of what's in Lesson 9 since we did not meet last week. So undoubtedly you've forgotten. But I'll try to do that quickly and then we'll get into the final lesson, Lesson number number 10. We have uh, some announcements. One is this afternoon at 5 o'clock is our baptism and baptism celebration dinner. Five folks being baptized, so please uh, plan on attending as an encouragement to those who, who are being baptized. Uh, if you were here for our first hour in the uh, observance of the Lord's table, we centered that around the connectedness of the body of Christ. Well, this is an expression of that connectedness when a, a a person is following the Lord in something like obedience to baptism, then that's something for all of us to uh, to celebrate and to make the effort to celebrate. So I encourage you to do that. So that's tonight at uh, 5. This uh, Wednesday, we do not have our midweek program because of Thanksgiving. So that'll pick up then the uh, the following Wednesday. And then also in your program, the uh, the family meeting that was scheduled one week from today has been moved to two weeks from today. And that's because uh, next weekend is Thanksgiving weekend. I've gotten word that a number of folks are going to be gone. And we want to make sure we have a quorum, enough people at that meeting to officially count as a meeting of the church because we have some things we're asking you to approve, to vote on. And one of those is the uh, is the ordination, calling a council for the possible ordination of a couple of guys in our church, and then also our 2017 budget. So those are some of the things coming up. The rest of them are listed in your program, so make sure you keep your eye on that and uh, respond to those things that apply to you. All right, page 21 in our Parenting with Purpose series. And you see up at the top there, it says part two, the Paideia process. We had part one, which was foundations of parenting. And then uh, a few lessons prior to this, we went into the second part of our two-part series called the Paideia Process. We're going to remind you what Paideia is in just a, a moment, but child-rearing is a, a process. And as you see at the top uh, paragraph there, we say in lesson eight, we noted that child-rearing is a process. The phases of development fall generally into three Control, formative, and evaluation. Control, roughly ages 0 to 6. Formative, 7 to 12. Evaluation, the teen years. Now, our approach has been to begin with the end in mind. So you've got these three phases. And your end game, we saw several weeks ago, Genesis 2.24, is to raise your child to be marriageable. And that means a number of things. And so as I go through these phases with my child, I want to make sure that when I get to the end of these three phases, that indeed they are there, that they are that they are marriageable. And they, as a Christian now, are looking for someone, a partner, who they will partner with uh, in order to serve the Lord together, if marriage is what God has for them. So that's the end game. These three phases now need to be pursued with that in mind. And because we are beginning with the end in mind, we started in reverse order. You see the three phases are 0 to 6, 7 to 12, and then the teen years. We started with the teen years. So if these are the things that a child needs to have emphasized to them during the teen years, then in the phase prior to that, that formative phase, there are certain things you need to do to prepare them for that. And if they're going to be ready for that, then in the very first phase, you need to prepare them for that. So we've kind of gone backwards, but with that rationale. Now, you look at the second 
second paragraph there. Each of the three phases has a key word. The objective of the control phase is submission. The child to learn submission. The objective of the second is character. The objective of the teen years is for them to learn wisdom. Now, we saw last time we were together here two weeks ago uh, the rest of what's on page 21. That character, which is the key word for this phase, this second phase of the paideia process, is an internal issue. And so you need to evaluate the character that's forming in your child. Appendix A, which is the next page, supplies some diagnostics for you to do that. We saw that last week. If you're going to help your child develop character in this formative uh, uh, formative phase of 7 to 12, then your middle of page 21 going to need to address the heart. And if you're going to address the heart of your child, it means a few things here. One, avoid Pharisaism. That is, avoid simply having your child do the right thing and have external conformity. You remember when Jesus confronted the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that that was most often the issue. They often did the right things, but they did the right things for external appearances, not with the right motivation. It's very easy for us in our Christian communities to want our kids to conform so that others will think well of them and, frankly, think well of us. So it's very easy then to be drawn into Pharisaism. You just want your kid to do the right thing. But if character is really a heart issue, and it is, then you're not satisfied with just doing the right thing. You want them to do the right thing for the right reasons. So make their conscience their guide. And notice the word make there is emphasized. And that's because our children don't know what to do just naturally. That's why the Bible commands us to raise them, bring them up. Give them direction. And so that requires instruction and modeling from us so that their consciences are molded in the right in the right direction. And then related to that first point about Pharisaism, go beyond the behavior to the motivation. The first phase of development deals with obedient behavior. That's what we're going to see here in a minute in our last lesson about our children learning at the youngest age, authority and submission. That has to do with obedient behavior. But this stage deals with behavior for the right reasons. So when a child is very small, they're two, you're not going to reason with them a whole bunch. Or I don't recommend you do, as you'll see when we get to the last lesson. They're simply learning to do what you tell them to do. So they're learning obedient behavior. And in that phase, that's all well and good. I think it's very wise. But this stage now, the child is older. And now you want them to do it for the right reasons. So we need to ask not only what they did and where they did it, but why they did it. So the recommendation here is when you have a child in this phase, this middle phase, that you begin questioning them about why they're doing what they're doing. So that you're helping them probe their heart and what's happening in their heart. The child, you know, why did you hit your sister? Because I wanted that toy. Now, you're, you're listening for heart words. I wanted. That's a heart word. I desire. They won't say desire. And, and what's happening there in the wants of that child is that the idols of their heart 
are taking control and coming out in their behavior. And you want to then question them. So, so notice, you wanted that. And you wanted that so much that you were willing to sin to get it. Because you sinned in angrily hitting your sister. All because you wanted that. More than you wanted to obey God. Do you see there's a hard issue going on here? Now, you, you constantly are doing that. You're probing your child's heart. And your child's then going to develop this belief about his or herself that, wow, I, uh, I've got a heart problem. Yep. Which then leads you to what? The whole idea for that is to lead them to the solution of the heart problem. Yes, indeed, you do have a heart problem. And this is the only solution to that. That's why Jesus came to die for us, and he gives us a new heart. And he gives us his spirit so that we want to do the right things. And I recommend to you, parents, that you learn, that you practice very early being transparent with your kids, too. As you're explaining to them, you know, you've got a heart issue. And this keeps coming up, and these things keep coming up, and they're all pointing to the sinfulness of your heart. But as you do that, pepper it with, you know, your dad has heart problems too. Your dad struggles with sin too. Be willing to say that. Your mom struggles with sin. You know, dad, say it about yourself. <laughs> Don't say to the kid, you know, your mom has problems too. And the child will be surprised at that. But you say, yeah, there are things I want to do. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, believe it or not, had these kind of problems. In Romans chapter 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. If Paul had this kind of struggle, you can believe your dad and mom still have a, a struggle. But Jesus is at work in our hearts. And I'm not doing the same things that I did five years ago and ten years ago. The Lord's growing me, and that's exactly what he's going to do with you. So that's the kind of addressing of the heart that we do with our children, and in particular at this stage. Now, you can start that at four years old. You know, this is seven to 12. You don't have to wait until the day they turn seven, particularly depending on your child. Some children are more advanced than others and can understand these concepts sooner. But that's the idea. And then, bottom of page 21, what you're doing in this phase is preparing for the next one. Each of these phases is looking ahead to what are they going to need and face in the next phase, so what do they need to come out of this phase with in order to be ready for it. You know, it's similar to what we do in Sunday school. It's similar to what we do in school, in the education system. You know, we try to look ahead and we say, these are the things that kids are going to have to do in fifth grade. Well, if they got to do these things in fifth grade, then they're going to need to learn these things in third and fourth. And if it works the way it's supposed to, by the time they get there, they have that. That's the idea here, preparing for the next step. In the next phase of development, the child will, and that's the 13 to 18 phase, as we saw, they're going to evaluate their worldview and members of the opposite sex and themselves. So to prepare them for that, we need to demonstrate wisdom in everyday living related to those things. Related to worldview, related to interaction with members of the opposite sex, related to understanding themselves properly. So here are the suggestions. That you really begin, even if, if you haven't already begun, a cultivation of a love for learning on the part of your child. Because at the next phase in the teen years, they're going to be doing all this evaluation of competing worldviews. 
They're going to have to learn, have learned how to think properly, how to look up the right answers, how to drink in the wisdom of others. That's part of cultivating a love for learning. Now, part of what that means is teaching that child to love reading soon. And the sooner the better. If you're someone who doesn't love reading, get over it. Really. You know, if you're, if you're somebody whose job, maybe your vocation doesn't require a lot of that, and so you don't do a lot of that. When you get home, you're tired and all of that, so I get that. But this is important enough that you model in front of your child that as their dad or mom, I value still learning of the Lord and learning from the Lord's people. And so I read books, and they see me reading books. Now, how can, the, how can you help the child do that? One of the recommendations that we have in your, the first two pages of your notes in the recommended reading section, uh, under, it's actually under the first phase, the zero to six phase, is a book called Honey for Your Child's Heart. Honey for Your Child's Heart. And that book is all about recommended reading for kids at various stages. So the earlier you get that and then start to, and start to acquire some of those things and have your child read them, that will help them cultivate this love of learning to prepare them for evaluating competing worldviews in the next phase. Bottom of page 21 also, if you're going to prepare them uh, for that, you're going to want to discuss the relevance of what they read and learn in just everyday talk. And you've heard me talk about this already, so I won't belabor it anymore. But just these conversations that you have, they're not formal, they're informal. But things are coming up and you're discussing them from the standpoint of biblical truth and a biblical worldview. Top of page 22. If at the next phase our children are going to be confronted now and making decisions about interactions with members of the opposite sex top of page 22, it means we need to model healthy sex roles to our children. So among other things, that means it needs to look to your child like you enjoy being with your spouse. So hug them, uh, tease with them, smile at them, greet them. Say goodbye to them. Stand out on the porch when they leave. I'm not, I, I'm not being just hokey here, okay? I mean it. So we do this. My wife stands at the door. I stand at the door. Say goodbye. Say goodbye to our girls. But we're, we're making it look like we enjoy each other. We don't, but we're making it look that way, okay? No, we really do. And our kids, our kids need to, to see that. So we'll hug each other. We'll kiss each other appropriately and all of that but our kids our girls have seen that for from a very young age and and we've noticed something that the girls just love it when they see us like hug each other it just makes them feel good it makes them feel really makes them feel secure i've got a mom and a dad who are committed to each other love each other and really like being around each other so communicating that by the way you model it in front of your kids uh, will help them. There's a lot to be said here that I don't have time to say. Dads, if you've got girls, uh, you want those girls to grow up thinking you're the model of what a godly guy is like. All the studies show that girls who have a close relationship with their father are less inclined to go and try to find intimacy with some guy. 
and girls who don't are. They look for this male approval. They look for this male companionship. But girls who, who have a healthy relationship with their father are less inclined to do that. So, guys, you play a serious role in that. A couple of the recommended reading books in this phase, in your recommended reading section, under the 7 to 12 formative phase, is a book called What Every Son Needs to Know from His Father and What Every Daughter Needs to Know. So those two books, if you've got sons, you've got daughters, you need to get those two books about what they need to know. And it covers stuff like this. And then if in the teen years they're going to be evaluating themselves, then during this prior phase to the teen years, you want to do what I say under C on page 22, communicate in word and deed an accurate self-image. In word and deed, an accurate self-image. That word accurate is very important. Notice I didn't say a high self-image. I didn't say a low self-image, an accurate self-image. Our kids need to learn to see themselves truthfully, accurately. And the truth of the matter is, our kids, all of them, are good at some stuff and bad at other stuff. So an accurate self-image helps them see that. You're helping them develop an understanding of themselves and what they are good at. And you congratulate them with that and you encourage them with that. And then they'll fail at some stuff. And that's okay too. So I'm not a gigantic proponent of everybody wins. You know, it takes great wisdom on the part of parents and coaches, I think, to on the one hand let kids learn how to lose without rubbing their nose in it. But in a healthy way, let them see I'm not good at everything. Uh, I learned this with Lainey. Early on, because when she was little, I used to chase her around the house. We would play chase. And I would just say as we're chasing around, I go, wow, you are fast. I would always just say, man, you are fast. Well, I realize that, you know, I'm playing with her. I'm trying to build. But the truth is I'm lying to her. She's not that fast. (laughs) But she's taking dad's word for it. I'm fast. And she is fast in her mind because dad's saying it. And she's the only one that's being compared to. Until she gets in kindergarten and they have a race and she comes in dead last. How is she going to handle this? Dad's told me for all these years I'm fast. So the teacher tells us they have this race and Lainey comes to the finish line. She jumps over the finish line and then she says, I win. She's last, but I win. Why? She hasn't been prepared for this. She hasn't been prepared for the idea that there are people faster than me and all of that. So she comes home and she starts to learn that. So this accurate self-image means telling our children the truth, obviously in a gentle and a kind way, both about the things they're very good at and then the things that other people are good at. And learning to appreciate the fact that other people are good at things that you're not and vice versa. All right. That's that formative phase. Now the last phase, but which is actually the first, to prepare for these other two is on page 23. And this is what we call the control phase where the children are learning authority and obedience to authority. Top of page 23. This lesson continues our look at the process, the paideia process. Given the content of this lesson, which is corrective discipline, it's necessary to remind ourselves of what paideia is. It's the New Testament word that's translated discipline, sometimes training. Training is more than punishment. It's not less than that. 
It involves corrective training, corrective discipline, but it's not just that. It's a process rather than an event. So bear that in mind, because although this lesson will focus on correction, it always needs to be kept in mind that punishment is but one aspect of training. As we will see, it's never an end in itself. It always has the positive goal of restoring the child when they have moved off the path of safety for them. We'll see what that means. So here's a child now from zero to six, and they are going through a period of change. You know, the, depending on whether you send your child to a daycare or a preschool or you wait until kindergarten, uh, at some point in this phase, the child is going to go outside the house. They're going to be outside the house and they're going to be in the presence of other, of other people. And so there, there's going to be social change. Because now it's not just mom and dad and siblings, if you have a house with two parents and other kids. Or, you know, they're, they're now going into not just the nursery where at church, where somebody is holding them and taking care of their needs, but now they're in the toddler area. And there are other kids there that play with the toys. And you know how church people's kids are. So they got to deal with these church people's kids. And the toddler teachers might have to come to you and say, this is what happened. And so-and-so bopped so-and-so on the head and all of that. But they've, they've got that going on. That's social change happening. At church, daycare, preschool, certainly by the time they get to kindergarten. And that's going to bring up issues for the child that are going to reveal their hearts that they're born with. We're all born with a sinful heart. And that's going to start manifesting itself in the child in these social interactions. Spiritual change. You know, the child gets toward the, particularly toward the end of that, six, five and six years old, you're trying to cultivate the heart with them as they have these things going on. And that starts, that means they start asking questions about their hearts. Just during the cafe community time, uh, one of the parents in our church, I didn't get permission to say this, so I won't use the name, but came up to me and said, uh, hey, we want, I wanted you to know that my seven-year-old re- received Jesus as Savior. What a beautiful thing. But that happens because a child is being taught these things. They're being taught these things at church. They're being taught these things at home. And the child sees, I've got this heart going on in the midst of these social interactions that I'm having and I'm getting angry, and I'm selfish, and all of that stuff. Spiritual struggle is going on, and Lord willing, spiritual change in their heart. They come to the Lord, whether at this stage or a future stage. And then there's intellectual change. You know, they're growing in their, in their minds and in their ability to receive information and process information. And during this even very early phase, you're amazed at your child learning words. And the stuff they learned without, as far as you know, you teaching them that. They just, where did they pick that up? How are they putting these concepts together? Uh, Let me just offer you one practical piece of advice about this intellectual change thing. Studies show, my wife and I bought into this back when we had our girls and we believe it now as well, that children who are secure 
develop their brains better. So when they are held and they feel safe and you talk to them and you sing to them, even if I sing to them, they like it. And you're just stroking their head and you are telling them how precious they are and how much you love them and all of that, there are there are connections being made in the brain when that happens. This is why you see children who have been abandoned have such a very difficult time. Because that development of the brain did not happen the way it's supposed to with that security and that and that love helping them develop their, their physical brains. So it's a major part of it as well. All right. And in all of this, in this very first phase, among many things you're trying to teach your child, there's one big thing you're trying to teach. And it's on page 23. That we are people under authority. That's the big idea. That's why we call it the control phase. And that's why the key word in this phase is submission. One big lesson that we are all people under authority. Ephesians 6. You see it there. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And the promise is it will go well with you and that you'll enjoy long life on the earth. So New Testament, quoting the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. And here's, here's what happens with that if you, if you follow it. So we have there what one author has called the circle of blessing. Obey. And then in general, things go well for you. Now notice I say in general. The Bible never guarantees an easy life, a la Job. You do the right things, it always turns out right. But those who learn to obey are generally going to have an easier time of it because the truth is they have got realms in which they're going to have to obey all throughout life. And the child who doesn't learn to do that at the earliest stages isn't going to be able to do it well in these other realms. School, work. I just recently had a young man, heard of a young man who's working, maybe his second or third job that he's ever had. And he made the, he's made the statement, quote, I don't like people telling me what to do. Well, good luck with that. You know, everybody's got somebody telling them what to do. Ultimately, everybody's got God telling us what to do. If you're, if you're a parent, dad particularly, but moms too, but I see this in men a lot of times. I've seen men who say, I need to start my own business because I can't work for anybody else. I, I, I admire entrepreneurs and people who are able to start and maintain businesses. I do. But that's a lousy reason to do it. Because as a Christian, you always need to be able to be under authority. The Bible teaches that in all sorts of realms. Government, whether you like the government or not, the Bible teaches that. Employers, and of course God himself. So we've got to teach that to our children. And the earlier you obey that, the more likely it is to go well with you because you're going to have that in all of these, these realms. So let's define these terms of honoring, going well, or, and obeying, and so on. Obey. It's submission to God's authority that causes the child to do what, that should say, he's told to by his parents immediately, without excuse, without complaint, and without question. Immediately. You teach your child at a young age, 
When I tell you to do something, you do it now. And notice, I'm not looking for Pharisaism. I'm not looking for you to just do what I told you to do. I'm trying to teach you to learn to do it for the right reason. And the right reason at this age is God is the ultimate and great authority and good authority. And this good authority has given you authorities in your life. That would be your parents. So you need to learn when we tell you to do something and we're teaching you to obey that we are acting on God's behalf in this. So you need to learn not just to do the right thing, but to do it with the right heart attitude. So that means do it when I tell you to do it. Don't whine about it. Don't make, okay? And just as a practical matter, the earlier you teach your kid to do this, the better off everybody will be in the future as well. Honor, submission to God's authority that causes a child to speak to his parents with respect for their role as God's agents of nurture, directions, and discipline. Now, if you're doing this, that means you're talking to a child at a very young age about God. I want you to know that God has placed us in your life. God entrusted you to us. God has given you to us, and we're so glad that he did. We love you dearly. And God has given us an assignment in your life to do these things. So that's why then you need to honor the role that we have because it's something that God has given us to do. Now, notice in both of those, they start with submission to God's authority. Obey is is submission to God's authority that... Honor, submission to God's authority that the major player here is God, not you. And you're understanding that and you're acting with that in mind and you're teaching that to your child because otherwise it just becomes your will against his or hers. Otherwise, it's just because I told you so and I'm bigger than you are. So I intimidate you into doing the right thing. But here you're invoking the truth that God is the one who's placed us here. And as you do this now, you're obeying, you're not, you're obeying God as you obey those that he's placed uh, in your life. The go well part, that's the spiritual blessing that comes to a child as he lives under, again, notice, God's authority. Along with the natural blessings that come as the adults in his world recognize that he's obedient and trustworthy. So the spiritual blessings, you can't, you can't come to Christ. This child or any person will never come to Christ until they recognize his love for them, yes, but also his authority over them. So there's a spiritual blessing that comes out of it, and then there's a natural blessing. This kid turns out to be somebody who can get along with other people, defer to others. They don't always have to have their way because they've learned to do that at a, at a young age. And then long life, the blessing of prosperity and protection, richness and fullness of life that God provides for the child who lives under his structure of authority. Generally, that's what happened. That child can find and keep a job who's grown up that way. Employers love people like this because they are easy to manage. And so there are things that then naturally come come out of that. So how does it work? The function, bottom of page 23. Hebrews 12 says... You have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Quote, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone that he accepts as a son. Now, do you all see that? That then corrective training, corrective discipline is on the part of God to us is an act of love on his part toward us. 
And it's actually an indication that we're in his family. If you can do wrong, if you can sin consistently without God's rebuke, then that's a very dangerous thing. Here's why. Because it may well be an indication you're not in God's family. Because God does rebuke those that are in his family. Those that are his sons. Why? He loves his sons and daughters. And he cares for them enough to not let them wander off the path of what is best for them. And he will do what is necessary to bring them back. So top of page 24, when our children move outside the circle of blessing, they put themselves in the way of danger. Therefore, this correction is positive. <laughs> you got to get this cemented in your mind because otherwise you won't do it. Here's why. It's hard. I'm going to talk in a minute about, um, you, can leave the, you can leave the recording on. But I thought about having you turn it off so I don't get arrested for saying this. I'm somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I'm going to talk about spanking your child. And we live in a day where, in, in Canada, you can be arrested for doing that. It hasn't quite gotten that way yet. The United Nations, I'm not making this up, the United Nations uh, has proposed resolutions to be adopted by the member nations that would make it a crime to spank your child. So just bear that in mind. What I'm talking about is what God says, not what the culture says. And it's hard. What I'm going to talk about can really be hard to do. So if you don't cement in your mind what's at the top there, that this is positive, it's not negative. This is for your child. This is to help your child. This is because I love my child as God loves me as his child. If you get that, you'll be willing to do the hard thing. If you don't, you'll throw in the towel on it. It's designed to be, top of page 24, restorative. It's a rescue mission that's aimed at returning the child to the right path, to the circle of blessing. So it's not primarily punitive, but corrective. Its goal is positive, not negative. So here's what the Bible refers to, if you have the King James, uh, as the rod of correction. And that's this whole spanking idea. We've got different thought forms in our culture. So if you follow what God says... And his thought forms, those are often going to be contrary to what the culture says. Just be aware of that. But God's word never changes. You see from Proverbs here, he who spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Discipline your son, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. Yikes. The warning there is that the child who is not properly disciplined, is a child who's going to go his or her way. And that's going to lead in very difficult directions, possibly even death. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. That folly is foolishness, is bound up in the heart of a child. We're born with foolishness, all of us. But the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with the rod, he will not die. Now, let me make sure I explain that. It doesn't mean that no matter what you do in spanking a child, there's this guarantee from God that they won't die. What that's saying is if you will engage in consistent discipline with your child, you will keep them from the death that's talked about in that other passage. Proverbs 
Do not be a willing party to his death. In other words, it's not saying it doesn't matter how you discipline the child. No matter what you do, they won't die. Kids have died because angry, abusive parents have killed them. So the Bible doesn't promise any such thing. What it's saying is, if you do this, you're keeping them within the circle of blessing rather than outside of it where it can lead to very negative consequences for them. That's what that's saying. And then Proverbs 29, the rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. Discipline your son, and he will give you peace. He will bring delight to your soul. So how do you do that? You cement in your mind this is a good thing for me to teach the child that there are consequences to wrong and that we have been placed by a good God in their lives as a good authority. And so as we exercise corrective discipline to them, we're doing something that uh, is on God's behalf and is a good thing. Once you cement that in your mind, now how do you do this? Your child does something wrong. Your child does something that you have told them not to do. Now notice, they need to know the offense. So you're not arbitrary. You're not just ticked off. You're not just embarrassed, right? You got that little kid and the kid is going crazy and you're embarrassed. You're embarrassed at church because you took the parenting class. And clearly you weren't listening. You think they think. And so you're embarrassed. And so this kid, I'm angry now, and I'm just going to fly out. That's not what we're talking about. The child has done something wrong, and you have informed them about that. You've told them what that is. So then what do you do? Well, one, privacy. You never humiliate a child. You never embarrass a child in front of other people. You've seen the parent who hauls off and corrects their child in the grocery store or wherever it is. So it's you take the child to a private place and you have a chat with them about what they've done. In the case of our daughters, we would take them to their room. Kim would do this. I would do this. We would take them to the room and then we would sit them down and go through these steps, being specific. Now, I want you to make sure you understand this is what you did. Daddy and Mommy have told you that you don't do that. And you did it anyway. So that's disobedience. And we're specific about the thing you did. And then, number three, you secure an acknowledgement. Now, am I right about that? Did you do that? Had you been told not to do that? So they know you're not unjust. They know you're not arbitrary. Indeed, you had told them, you had made it clear, you were specific, and they've done it. And then you instruct on on obedience. Um, you tell them this is the way it's supposed to go. This is what you're supposed to have done, as opposed to what you did. Now, because disobedience always has pain that goes with it, we want you to learn that. So you're going to be punished, I'm going to spank you. And then the little kid is, you know, oh, no. Annie used to say, quote, don't pank my bottom. Spank my bottom. And it was always the bottom for us. The bottom is thick. We're not trying to hurt our children. We love them dearly. We're simply trying to have them understand that sin causes pain. 
Disobedience causes pain. And depending on how old they are, if they're very small, you spank them a couple of times. And then you do these other things. You're communicating control. I'm not doing this out of anger. I'm not out of control. Doing this very methodically. But then these last two are extremely important. Practice reassurance. This was always really hard to do, but we did it. And we did it consistently. Thank the Lord. But my favorite part of doing this hard thing was these last two. Practice reassurance. Holding that little body and saying, I love you dearly. I love you so much that I'm willing to do things that are even hard for me to do because I love you. And to just stroke that little head and that body and make sure that they know that them doing something wrong doesn't mean they're outside of our love, ever. Practicing this reassurance and then praying with them. Hey, we're going to pray. We're going to go to the Lord. Because the Lord is the one who is the good authority over daddy and mommy and over you. And he's the one who's put us in this position to to help you. And so we're going to ask him to help us to help you. And to help you next time you're faced with the same thing. To obey the way we the way we talked about. Okay? And so then we and then we pray together. And then as that happens, you don't we don't our girls didn't develop antagonism toward us because we went through this very carefully every time they didn't hate us because of it they knew we had their best interests at heart and we weren't trying to harm them quite the contrary we were seeking to help them now what was the fruit of that i don't know when the last time we had to spank the girls was but we did this when they were young and as a result of doing it when they were young we didn't have to do it later I think it's accurate to say, but Kimmy can correct me. I think it's accurate to say we never had to spank the girls in the second phase. This was all in the first phase. Because once they get the idea in the first phase, in the first few years, then there's an understanding. And you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this later. So that was the case. That was the case for us. Now, kids are different, all of that. But the earlier... You do this and you teach kids about this good circle that God has placed them in. The better off they will be and you will be. Now, we have a book. In your recommended reading, under this phase, called, here's the title, Don't Make Me Count to Three. Now, the title's designed to be provocative, and it actually it actually takes to task that very thing that some of us say. Don't make me, all right, one... To, right? We start threatening. Or we, you know, we see them doing something wrong. We yell at them. Then if to stop doing it, then they don't stop doing it. We yell at them with their middle name. Okay? Now they know I'm really serious. And see, that whole thing we talked about earlier about immediately, don't make me count to three, says, you don't go through all those steps. You don't go through a routine where you've trained your child that they only really mean it when their volume gets to a certain decibel level. They only really mean it when they get really ticked off. Because we don't discipline when we're ticked off. It's not that I'm ticked off. It's that for your benefit, 
This is what you need to learn. So I'm under control, which is the last thing that I want to tell you. Never discipline your child in anger. Never. If you are angry, you are not in a position to discipline your child. We never disciplined our girls in anger. We were angry at our girls. We just didn't discipline them then. We waited. We waited until we were under control when we reminded ourselves of why we're doing this so that we could calmly and in a reassuring way do this for their benefit. Now, if you'll do that at those early ages, it will help you immensely, prepare you for the next stage, and then the next stage after that. Last thing, two last things. One, starting in January, and every January going forward, on our midweek program on Wednesday nights, we're devoting that semester to practical Christian living. The first semester is instruction on biblical truth and so on. But that second semester is going to be divine designed for women's classes, men's classes, teaching on finances, all sorts of practical Christian living kinds of things, including Q&A about stuff like this. Because I know that I put it on paper, and at least to me it all sounds good on paper, and it sounds good to me on paper because we did it and it, it all worked out okay. So I can tell you all of this, but there are practical issues that come up in the course of doing this where you could use the wisdom of people that have done it. So we're going to have, uh, during that second semester, at times, kind of Q&A sessions with a panel of parents who have already gone through this or parents who are going through it so that we can come together and we can ask those kinds of questions. Last thing is, men, I need the men who are able and willing to stick around after we pray because we need to set up for tonight's baptism celebration dinner. should just take about 15 minutes to set up the tables and chairs in here. So ladies, after we pray, if you'll leave, guys, if you can stay in here. And then uh, Travis uh, Ma is going to show you. It's my understanding he's the one who's going to show you how to set these up, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful to you for these 10 weeks together to talk about what you have assigned to us as you've blessed us with children. Lord, we thank you uh, for telling us in your word what family life is supposed to be about and how we are supposed to order our families and the roles that we are to play within our families. Thank you, Lord, for not leaving us to grope in the darkness and to guess. Thank you for telling me as a father and as a husband what you have me to do with these with the wife that you have given me and these children that you gave to us. And then, Lord, thank you for your spirit who works in us so that we can do what you have told us to do. We can't do it on our own. We always need your aid. And we thank you, Lord, that you are willing to provide it. So thank you for your instruction. Thank you for your spirit that gives us the ability to carry that instruction out. We thank you as well, Lord, that you've done this work of transformation in our hearts so that we want to do the things that you have said. We want to follow you even if the culture does something else. We want to instill what you have said in our children no matter what everyone else is doing. Thank you for creating that desire within us. It's from you. I thank you for these brothers and sisters who are here, who are here because they desire that. I pray your blessing upon them in this blessed task. Grant them the work of your Holy Spirit continually to cause them to desire and to be able to do what you have said. Grant them the courage 
to carry it out even when it is hard. And Lord, we pray for our precious children, those that we have and those that are still to come, that you would work in their hearts as you've worked in our hearts to show us what we are, show us what our need is, show us our need of the Lord Jesus. Bring those children, all of our children, we would ask you, bring them to yourself. And then begin to work your will in them, using us as your instruments. Lord, we would desire that as they grow up then, and they become marriageable with a desire to please you in whatever partnership you, if you provide them a partnership in marriage, that they would desire to please you in carrying out, out your work. Lord, thank you that you've loved us enough to save us, to instruct us, and to allow us to do this work. And because it is your work, we entrust it to you. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.